Well, hey friends, I'm Josh, one of the ministers. If we haven't met, it's so good to see you this morning. I'm glad to celebrate Jesus with you. And to our friends joining us online, I'm just thankful for the privilege of knowing that we celebrate the same Jesus Christ, risen from the grave with the Father, and one day will return. That's good news. By the way, I, I, I say this periodically just to let you know what an impact you're having, not only here in the city, but around the world. We uh, periodically we'll receive notes from people in places who join us online. Obviously, we want to welcome everyone coming from Georgia and Texas and Indiana and other places in the States. I also just want you to know that this week we had Christians from Romania reach out to us, thanking us for this and what a gift you are. And so I just want you to know that God is blessing us, and as we are able, we get to bless more people than we even get to meet face-to-face. Isn't that cool? All right, let's get into it today, part four, Revelation. If you don't remember anything else from today, remember this, God wins. And he invites you to be a victor with him. I want to start here, not really with a question, more of just a reality. Isn't it true that there are moments in life where we go from winning to losing, like just like that? Have you ever had a moment where you thought you were on top of the game, on top of the world, everything was great, and then something happens, and it's like, the record stops, and you go, not anymore. And if you haven't had that moment, here's all I invite you to do. Have kids. (laughs) Just, Just have kids. You will think you are rock star, and then you'll go to, why am I even here? Now, let me give you an example. Almost 11 years ago now, my son was just a few months old. Uh, Lindsay and I were just starting to settle into the rhythm of parenting, and I thought we had figured some things out relatively well. Enough that I thought, keyword thought, I would be okay if Lindsay went away for like just one night. We practiced all the things. I mean, we ran the drill. She's like, how do you feed a baby? Okay, I tried, and you know, no, that's too hot, and so she smacked me. I try again. I got good at that. How do you change a diaper? By the way, Uh, little notes to new parents with little boys. The key to changing a diaper is get something covered quickly first, okay? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Just give me a little wink, okay? So I thought I was ready, and so I say, babe, we're good. Got the bags packed. Life's rocking. She's ready to go. I carry Stephen out the front door. She's in the car. She's driving off. She's thrilled because this is like, you know, the prison door has opened, and she's gone. And I'm like, I'm the best husband who has ever lived. As soon as she leaves, I turn around to try to go back inside. Keyword, I go, K-k-k-k-k-k. I'm holding a four-month-old, and the door's locked with my keys, my wallet, and my phone inside. From hero to zero. That is not the phone call I wanted to make, nor is it the phone call my wife wanted to receive. Hey, babe, I know you've barely made it out of the neighborhood, but could you come home, please, like right now? But isn't it true that it's not just when it comes to parenting, there's all sorts of moments where we walk in, and as Christians, it is very easy to walk in and put a face that says, I'm winning, when inside we all know it's not. And maybe it's nothing epic, Maybe you just can't seem to get things together. Maybe, maybe you just feel like the gears of life don't seem to be clicking. Then in other cases, maybe it is a bigger deal. You come in here and you look really good on the outside, but your marriage is just, you, you don't know what to do. 
The relationship with your children is not what you always hoped or prayed it would be. Or maybe there are some financial struggles or health struggles. Or let's go a layer deeper. How many of us, don't raise your hand, but how many of us, if we were honest, would say when we come in, there are Sundays that we praise God, but we wonder if He even likes us because we know what we did this past week. And we say, I want to be a certain way, but there is no way that I can be that. I am below the line. I am under the bar. I am underwater. And so I have a word for each of you. If that's where you are today, and if you're not today, hold on to this because there will be a day you need it. Hear me now. No matter how you walked in here, Jesus is here to meet you so that you will walk out different than when you came in. And he will go with you this week. See, we're not the only ones to feel this way. The early church, the first century, we're now sitting around 95, 96 AD. We're now probably into the third generation of Christians from when Jesus ascended to heaven. And life is hard. Rome is oppressive. Domitian, the emperor, is cruel. He is a wicked man who is spreading his reign of terror against the church across his empire. And it is to this group of people that Jesus appears. But he doesn't come to them directly. Rather, he comes to a man named John. We call him John the Revelator because he meets Jesus on an island called Patmos. Everyone say Patmos. He meets Jesus on Sunday morning. John, although by himself, is celebrating Jesus in worship on Sunday. I'm so glad he didn't sleep in because we would not have this letter. Jesus comes to him and says, John, I want to speak to my church. Take a note. I'm going to talk to seven churches. These seven, all those seven, represent all churches throughout time and history. And so he speaks to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. First thing I need you to know, this is a circular letter. So it goes in this order. Jesus addresses the churches in this order because it's like a letter that would have been passed from one to the next to the next. Second thing I need you to know is these churches, or rather these cities, were major urban centers of the ancient world. According to historian Rodney Stark, we think that Ephesus would have had probably 250,000 people in the city, 125 in the city of Smyrna, Pergamum with 180, and Sardis with about 100,000. These are big cities. So you say, digs. How big was the church? If you have a quarter of a million people, surely they've got hundreds or thousands in the church, right? Well, let's remember the context. This is first century, still a young movement. How many Christians would be in each city? Can you see that number? That's how they felt. Not hundreds, not thousands. Maybe dozens of Christians in each place. And so they weren't in a big church like this. Rather, they were sitting at home around candlelight. And they hear the word that Jesus has a word for them. Can you imagine sitting here? Someone walks in and says, the Lord showed up to me. He has told me something just for you. And now you're waiting to hear his word to you. And here's what you hear, correction and comfort. Because to be victorious will require correction, but then Christ also gives comfort. And so he begins the words to the churches, number 5, 6, and 7 in chapter 3. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning? We will read the whole chapter, so bear with me 
as we hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, for you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast to it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he, talking about Jesus, what he opens, no one can shut, and what Jesus shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that, they, that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is, there's that word again, victorious. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears now, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So become you are lukewarm, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, well, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is, what's that word, church? I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Come now, Lord Jesus. Teach us what we need to hear that we may be victorious. Holy Spirit, go before us in the text so we may understand. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all those who greet said...
Amen. You may be seated. All right, here we go. We covered the first four churches last Sunday. Now Jesus finishes with Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now Sardis, what you need to know about this church is that, well, it was a very, very wealthy church. Sardis, put the map up. Sardis was a former capital of a previous empire, but Rome came in, utterly destroyed them. However, because of their shrewd negotiation, Sardis was able to maintain their autonomy and became a banking center, commerce, wealth, rich, rich city. As a result, the church was very wealthy. And this was the it church of the first Century, You say, it church digs, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. This is the church that would have held all the conferences for the other churches on how to be a great church. If they had musicians in this church playing on the Christian radio, they would write songs that we would sing in our churches. This would be the kind of church that ministers would send their resumes to just in case there was an opening. This was a church known for being alive, for having a lot of programs, a lot of events, a lot of activities The churches around them said, you guys are awesome. So you can only imagine as they're sitting there in their home, a few dozen or more by candlelight, and they hear the word of the Lord has come. They say, oh, and they read Christ's words to the first four churches, and then they see their name, and they're like, huh, finally, God has a church he can be proud of. Let's see what he has to say to us. But Jesus does not mince words. He says, everyone thinks you're alive. They go, yeah, that's right. But I know the truth. You're dead. You do not match on the inside what everyone sees on the outside. You're known for being rich, but you're really poor. You're known for being alive. You're really asleep. You're known for having it all together, but something is not working. Now, how in the world can we be this divorced from reality? But come on, let's be honest. We all know we do this all the time, don't we? We can be divorced from reality even with things as common as food. Isn't it true? So you want to lose some weight and you think you eat pretty well until you start tracking what you eat. Show of hands, how many of you have ever tracked your food? Can I just see some? Man, that is like one of the rings of hell, isn't it? It's like I thought I was doing really well, but man, I didn't realize that Twinkies and Ho-Hos had that many calories in them. No wonder I look like a Twinkie or a Ho-Ho. Or you want to get better with your finances and you think you're doing well until you begin to track your expenses. The church in Sardis thought they were really well until Jesus began to track what was going on inside the church. See, it is easy to be so focused on appearances, you miss the substance, what's happening on the inside. And one of my fears in the local church is that we will be so concerned with how we present ourselves when we gather that we never evaluate what's going on inside of us. Friends, the Lord does not care if you wear shorts to church or a tie to church. He cares what's going on under the surface. He doesn't care if you drove in a nice car or a beat-up Pinto. He wants to know what's going on inside. He doesn't care if you give on Sunday a little or a lot. He wants to know what's going on inside. And Sardis was so focused on how they appeared, they missed what was most important. And Jesus says, this is not a small matter. You are dead. There's still a little bit of life, but the candle is waning. Wake up. 
This is a euphemism used throughout the New Testament to describe someone who's dead but has the potentiality. If God is willing to help, they have the potential to come back alive. He corrects and then he comforts. He says to the victorious, you are dead, but you can wake up. It is not too late. Some of us are in here and we are growing cold to God. We are dying on the inside because we're more afraid of what people think about us than that we are honest about what we're struggling with. And he says, you must wake up to the reality of your situation. Talk with someone. Be honest about it enough that you can find the healing and the hope of Jesus Christ. And by the way, PSA, public service announcement, the church of Jesus must be a place where everyone is welcome to share their garbage. Amen? Because Jesus already received it, paid for it, and it's the church where we learn how to now deal better because of it. To the church of Philadelphia, Jesus writes, you're weak and you're small. Oh man, to all my weak and small people today, if you're feeling beaten up, listen to the words Jesus has for the Christians like you. He says, you're weak and you're small, but you have not denied me. You've not given up the faith. You haven't bowed a knee. This is one of only two churches that Jesus has no critique. He says, even when the synagogue of Satan was at your door, you didn't give up. Now, synagogue of Satan, what's that? Now, if you went to Philadelphia, you would not find a synagogue. By the way, synagogue is a Jewish church. That's all it is. You would not find a Jewish church with satanic symbols above it. What's Jesus saying? There were those who were Jewish but not Christian who were attacking the Christians. Why? Little history. In the first century, the Jews were a protected class in Rome. They were not required to worship Caesar or the other gods. It was dicey, but they could get away with not having to do it. From them came the Christians. The Christians because of their peculiarity, taking things much further than the Jews did, they started to create problems. People began to look at them. The Jews did not like this, and so the Jews began to cause trouble for the Christians because they were afraid the Christians would mess up the Jewish protected status. So now, in the city of brotherly love, there is nothing but discord. Isn't it true that the name of a place doesn't determine the quality of the place? Isn't it also true that you can say church on a building and inside it's chaotic? Jesus Christ calls us to be a place of unity. A place that holds to, yes, the foundations of the faith. But we are to be a place that loves on one another. Now, Christ says to the church in Philadelphia, I know you are weak and you are feeling like your doors are about to be shut. But then he says these words, hang in there for I hold the keys of David. Now, what does that have to do with anything? All right, if you're 16 years old, you know what it means to hold the keys, don't you? Come on, how many of you remember the days when you were 16 years old, you finally get that magical piece of paper or plastic that has your face on it? By the way, isn't it, just a side note, isn't it interesting, like, the photo they choose is like the worst picture. It's like they hire people who are specialists. Okay, anyway, anyway. You get your license and you go to your dad. You go to your mom. You say, can I borrow the keys to the car? Because there's this fine looking young lady. I want to take her out and I got to have wheels. And your daddy hands you those keys. 
and you've got the power. <laughs> right? You know what this is like? He says, I hold the keys. In other words, I have the power over the circumstances. I am the one who is in control. And in which hand does he hold the keys? His right hand. That is the symbol for power. It's like I have the power holding the power. What's he saying? No one beats me. You feel like your church is about to shut down, but I have opened a door that they cannot shut. And if you will hang in there, You will be victorious and you will be, what's that word in verse 11? Oh yeah, you will be a pillar. Next slide. Go one more here. He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now this is a reference to the Old Testament. By the way, whenever you get confused in Revelation, go to the Old Testament. Most of the images are from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 7, Solomon builds the first Jewish temple and it is magnificent. And there are these two exquisite columns, two pillars called Jachin and Boaz. It's these two right here. There's great detail about their construction because these pillars were vital to the construction of the temple. You say, how? They held open the portico, the place above. That place above so that the doors could remain open to the temple. These two names, Jachin means God will establish. Boaz means God will strengthen. God will establish and strengthen the church so that if you will stand strong when it is hard, you will be a pillar of the church. What does it mean to be a pillar in the church? Well, what did those pillars do? They held open the doors to the temple. To be a pillar in the church means that you hold the doors open to those who need to meet Jesus Christ. To be a pillar is not simply about attending a church for many years. Being a pillar is not simply about just showing up on a Sunday. To be a pillar of the church, you can be five years old because if you are someone who says, welcome in Jesus' name, if you invite people in Jesus' name, age has nothing to do with that. You may be a pillar in the church of Jesus Christ. And so he asks really this question. Are you willing to stand when it's hard? Are you willing to not deny the faith, not deny my name? And I know, I know, I know so many of us, we say, but Josh, I'm the only Christian in my workplace And he says, yes, I know, I have established you there and I will strengthen you there so that you may open the door so that others may come to know me. But Josh, I'm one of the only Christians in my class. I know there's others who say they are, but have you heard what they say? I'm the only one. God may have put you there to establish you and strengthen you so that you may open the doors and invite others to come to know Jesus. In the dating world, isn't it true that some of us absolutely feel like we are the only ones who stand for Jesus. But he says, I will establish and strengthen you so that you are one who says there is another way and his name is Jesus. To this little church, he says, no critique, just stand firm, hold on, and you will be a pillar. But to this last church, Laodicea, it's all critique, no compliments, This is the church that even if you don't go to church, you may know about this church. Because this is the 
neither hot nor cold church. This is the lukewarm church. You say, lukewarm. Why were they lukewarm? Let me show you a little bit of geography here. This is the Lycus River Valley. Everyone say, Lycus River. You have Laodicea here. To the north is Heropolis, another city. And to the east is Colossae. Heropolis in the north was known for its hot, bubbly springs. It's like a prehistoric version of a hot tub. How many of you, by the way, how many of you enjoy a hot tub? Anyone in here with the jets going? Uh, right? We went on a little family vacation not too long ago, and there was a hot tub where we were at, and the kids got in the hot tub. They're just little bitties, and they're playing with the jets. And one of them, Cassidy, who's just like this big, she gets, she turns the jet on, and next thing we see her, she goes, bloop, and she's gone. It's fantastic. We, we found her. Don't worry. It's okay. Hierapolis. It was healing hot springs. That's what they were known for. Colossae, on the other hand, they were known for their cool mountain water. This was the kind of stuff you'd bottle today and sell for a fortune. Laodicea sat smack dab between. So what does that tell you about their water? Lukewarm. Not only that, they had a really bad water source, so bad that they would have to pipe in water from Heropolis through some Roman aqueducts. Here's the problem. Those aqueducts had a high mineral content. What does that have to do with anything, Josh? Here's what it has to do with it. The water would go through, picking up all those nasty-tasting minerals as it went. So by the time it got to the mouths of the Laodiceans, well, this is how it made them feel. They wanted to blow chunks. Okay? It's all history. Jesus uses the quality of their water to describe the quality of their faith. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold and refreshing or hot and refreshing, but instead you just sort of sit here in the middle, absolutely tepid. What does it mean to be lukewarm? Here's what it means. It means you are willing to settle for so much less than God has in store for you. Lukewarm says that I will come to a gathering on Sunday because I need to check a box, but that is the extent of my relationship with God. Lukewarm is that I will give a little bit so I assuage my guilt, but I will not give my life to something bigger than myself. And Jesus says, there are so many opportunities, there are so many ways that you could have stepped in, given yourself, made a difference, and you chose to just kind of just exist. And that kind of Christianity makes God sick to his stomach to the point that Jesus says, this is serious. If you do not change, I will spit you out. I don't want to have anything to do with someone whose relationship with me is merely transactional or perfunctory, meaning you just do it because that's what you do. He says, I want you to be hot or cold. I want you to be a part of what I am up to. And then notice this, the most, I think, shocking part of this entire thing is not that Jesus says, I want to puke. It's that he says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, if you've ever been to an evangelism, um, you know, revival meeting or anything like that, you've heard this passage preach, haven't you? I stand at the door and knock, O sinner, if you will just let me in, I will come and eat with you. And everyone says, during somewhere in the 20th stanza of just as I am, so come forward, right? You remember these days? And I don't think that's a bad way to understand it, but that's not to whom Jesus is speaking. Where is Jesus standing when he is saying, I stand at the door and knock? He stands 
outside his own church. How do you come in, sing songs about Jesus and to Jesus, prayers to God, scripture about God, communion, and Jesus not even be there? It happens when you say, I will live less than what God has called me to. I'm only here to check a box, to do what I have to, so when I die, I have fire insurance. He says, that is not what I called you into. So repent. What does repent mean? We've said this before. It means turn around, come back, draw near. Now, this is a bummer way to end the message today, isn't it? Good news, that's not how it ends. There's this one little word, next slide, there's this one little word that is over and over repeated. Lukewarm Laodicea, he says something though, and to anyone here who just feels a little lukewarm to Jesus today, I have good news for you. He uses a phrase here and with every other church, to the victorious. In other words, you may have walked in here lukewarm, but I am not done with you yet. There is still hope. While the flame still burns, there is still hope to the victorious. And he doesn't just say to Laodicea, he says this to every one of the churches. To loveless Ephesus, he says, to the victorious. To afflicted Smyrna, anyone here who just feels overwhelmed and burdened, he says, to the victorious, to Pergamum, the compromising church. Man, if you feel like you're making backroom deals with the world and compromising, he says, that is not how I designed you and that doesn't have to be the end of your story. He says, to tolerant Thyatira, to the victorious, to the church in Sardis, that little church that thought it was all that. He said, you're dead, but it's not over yet. You may be victorious. You may have walked in here thinking you had it all together, and I've shown you you haven't, but I don't leave you where you are. The good news of the gospel is Jesus knows exactly where you are. He has come to meet you today so he can take you to be where he wants you to be. And to the church in Philadelphia, I know that you feel oppressed and attacked, but to the victorious. This is the call and the invitation, no matter where you are today, what church you are represented by, to the victorious. And to each one, he gives them something. See, Jesus doesn't simply want to save you from your sins. He wants to bring you something more. You say, really? Yes, we saw with Philadelphia. He will make you a pillar, but let me give you one. Are you ready? Last one, then we'll call it a morning. This is the last thing. Pergamum. Last week we said this. There's this one promise. I said we're going to talk about it today. Here we go. Very fast. Notice what he says to the church in compromising Pergamum. To the one who's victorious, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Ah, yes, that's great, right? It's like, what does this even mean? Theologians will tell us that this one little phrase can have nine different interpretations, and all of them are legitimate. I'm going to give you very quick my top three. And wherever you are today, one of these speaks to you. Are you ready? The first one is this, white stones. In a judicial setting, if you are on trial for your life, The judge, if he found you guilty, he would condemn you and hand you a black stone signifying that you were now to be killed. But if he heard testimony and decided that you were innocent, he would give you a white stone acquitting you of what you did wrong. 
When the world demanded your life for the sin that you had committed, Jesus Christ stepped in, died for you, gave his life, and now God says, I give you the forgiveness of sin. You have been given the white rock of forgiveness, church. The second one, how many of us like sports? Let me see some hands in here. Do you like sports? How about this one? How many of you watched the Tennessee game last night with that other team? Yeah? All right, you'll love this one. In sports, if you were the winning team or individual, the judges would award you a white stone signifying that you are the victor. So not only are you acquitted of your sins, not only does the past no longer get to define you, not only are you not condemned, Jesus says you now get to live victoriously. You, through the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, get to live in victory over Satan, sin, and death. You say, yes, but I still struggle. The struggle is not the same thing as failing. You are a victor in Jesus Christ. And the third, if you're invited to a banquet, perhaps by a wealthy individual or the king, the sun is setting You can see the lights from the house, and as you approach there, standing at the door would be one who would look at the list, and if your name is on the list, would hand you a white stone. But not just any white stone. The stone with your name on it, saying you are welcome to the feast. There's a table and a place for you. You have been forgiven of sins. You're invited to live in victory. And one day, you will be invited to the banquet table of the King, King Jesus. When night falls on earth, when you open your eyes again, it will be to see your King who says, Welcome. I know you. You're welcome in. And did you get this last part? New name. Known only to the one who receives it with your spouse or maybe girlfriend or boyfriend, have you ever noticed sometimes we come up with pet names for each other? Names that only the other one knows. Jesus is saying, I will give you a white stone and I will put on it the name that is so intimate between us. I don't simply want a generic relationship with you. I want you personally. To the victorious, you've been acquitted. To the victorious, you are now a victor in life. To the victorious, you are invited into the banquet table. And so today, I don't know how you entered this place, but by the power of Jesus Christ, you may leave a victor because of what he has done, is doing, and one day promises to do.